Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to ask you guys, if you enjoy this podcast, please go on iTunes um, in the podcast app and give us a five-star review. It really helps us uh, get recognition and and find sponsors and things like that. So uh, if you have a second, just go do that. You can do it from your cell phone. It really takes uh, almost no time. Okay, and welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, Today, we're doing part three of our Riches Vascular Trauma Series. Um, We're here with Alec and Alexis. And uh, we're just going to dive in. Today, we're covering the aorta, IVC, visceral vessels, and the lower extremities. So a lot to cover here in a short amount of time. So let's get started with an arterial injury in the abdomen and pelvis. Let's consider a 25-year-old male is inbound to your trauma bay with reports of a gunshot wound to the abdomen. What are some things you need to think about when faced with this mechanism and location of injury? So, you, you, you know, injury to, to vessels in this area, such as the aorta and the visceral arteries, can be variable. That It can be small venous injury, with, you know, has a stable presentation versus a larger arterial injury, which can have pretty significant rapid deterioration. So time is really critical when they present. Yeah, like we talked about in the previous podcast, um, it all meant... Uh, Depend, your management depends really on how they're presenting. If these uh, patients are presenting um, unstable, um, they're definitely going to be needing to go to the OR rapidly um, prior to any other major interventions. And just, you know, to circle back to that conversation we had around Reboa in episode one, this is a good time. If the patient comes in and appears stable, but they've got a penetrating injury, you know, in the vicinity of concerning vessels, you may want to consider pre-placing Reboa for kind of safety purposes. Absolutely. So if the patient is stable enough uh, to, to get to the CT scanner, uh, these injuries are best identified with the CTA and can be categorized into zones. So you can guys talk about the zones that we uh, refer to when talking about vascular trauma injuries. Yeah, so um, vascular injuries in the abdomen, we consider zone one, zone two, zone three. So a zone one is um, your midline retroperineum, um, looking from your diaphragm to your sacrum. Um, so Concerns in this area for aortic IBC um, injuries and their immediate branches um, from there. Um, zone two is your uh, lateral retroperitoneal uh, area, primarily looking at your renal artery and vein for your uh, major vessel injuries that can occur there. And zone three is in your pelvis, so looking at the iliacs and their branches. Absolutely. So, what's the point of these zones? Why do we why do we have these? Um, is, does it have to do with how we treat it? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of there's, you know, a, again, in general disclaimer, but for, for each zone, there's kind of a, a general idea of how you'd want to manage a penetrating versus blunt injury. So for zone one, both penetrating and blunt injuries should be intervened upon, whether that's open or endovascular is kind of dependent on the patient and the team's capabilities. Zone two, a blunt injury can be observed 
but you want to, in that sense, have a pending a CT finding that shows the kidney um, with some evidence that it's perfused and a stable patient. Um, but if you do see an intraoperative and non-expanding hematoma in zone two, so around the kidney, that is generally something you can observe. However, a penetrating zone two injury should be explored. And then lastly, for zone three, a blunt patient can be stable, that stable can be observed, again, if your CTA results are reassuring. Um, and a penetrating patient or a non-stable patient goes to the OR. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is very variable to kind of what you see both in the CT scan and you're looking at the patient or you're in the OR and seeing these injuries. But uh, I think that's a good place to start. Um, yeah. And, and, and uh, another thing to consider here is that um, there are a lot of endovascular management options um, as far as vessel uh, management of vessel injuries uh, in these areas. But um, for today, I think it'd be probably best to stick with open approaches like we talked about in previous episodes. Great. Okay. With our hypothetical gunshot wound patient, we've made the decision to go to the OR because he's unstable with a penetrating abdominal wound. How would you prep for this? So just like we've said, I think in every episode thus far, the, and it's a key in trauma, is really being prepping wide and preparing for any circumstance that might arise. So you want to really do a prep from the neck to the knees that allows for an anterior lateral thoracotomy if needed for proximal control, a groin cut down if needed for distal control or for potentially verbal placement access, such like that, and potentially vein harvest in the leg. So you want to have as much exposure as possible. Absolutely. So now that we are prepped, walk me through your surgical approach. Um, so we're getting into the abdomen. It's again, back to the basics here, a large midline laparotomy, and you're going to be completing your four quadrant packing upon entry. Um, as far as packing, there's a lot of different ways that people discuss how they pack. Um, some people will say, um, you know, when you have all your packs placed, you want to remove in a specific order. Some people say from least likely to have your injury to most likely others say you do it the same way every every time the main thing is to pick the the way that works for you and so you're not missing quadrants or missing injuries when you're removing your packs after placement and again uh you know another reboa note this is another opportunity to pray to pre-place reboa with a balloon down because before you open up the abdomen, the patient may, may be stable, but as soon as you open up that compartment and allow for, you know, ongoing bleeding, you get, you have that potential for some hemodynamic compromise and having a reboa there allows a really easy and fast way of getting control proximally. That's not as morbid as the anterolateral thoracotomy would be. Yeah. I, I personally think this is one of the best uses of reboa um, is in a patient with an injury like this, and they're not dying in front of you actively um, and getting that rebel up there to be sort of uh, your proximal control or your backup. Um, I think that really is one of the, the biggest um, places we can help patients with a reboa. Um, okay. So we're done packing and we identify a large zone one hematoma. Uh, what is your plan or approach at this point? Um, so here, like we said earlier, it's zone one, we need to be exploring this. Um, the main thing to make sure you're thinking about in your head before going exploration is proximal and distal control every time. You definitely don't want to dive into a hematoma, especially in this area, without having that control first. Yeah. So uh, walk me through how do we get proximal control here other than the Reboa, which we mentioned? There's a couple of different ways you can we can go about um, gaining control here. Um, one of the easiest is in most rapid ways is just to get a sponge stick or your hand um, 
near the hiatus and uh, apply downward compression on the spine. Manual compression to aorta is something that you can get immediately right there. Um, if you're getting your superciliac control, um, you'll first want to take down that gastropatic ligament. Um, watch out for the, the replace left um, patic artery here um, when you're doing your dissection. Um, dissect down to the right cruise, and then um, at that area is where you can um, place your, your clamp around the aorta. Um, for very proximal injuries, or if you're uh, I guess I should say for supercilliac injuries, or if you're, that's where your location of your injury is, you can definitely consider doing your left anterior lateral thoracotomy here and doing your cross clamping um, as another option. Yeah, I think uh, I have most of my experience here with ruptured triple A's, but um, you can, uh, you know, do an X lap and go in that lesser sack just with blunt dissection and have the aorta pinned against the spine uh, and really, you know, under 30 seconds. Um, and so, and then, then you kind of do your official dissection and get your clamps in place or your sponge stick. Um, but definitely just get into that lesser sack, feel the spine, feel the aorta and compress there. Um, okay. So now you have proximal control. How do you, how can you expose the injury and gain distal control? So if I had a suspected proximal aortic or an aortic branch injury, I would perform a left to right medial visceral rotation, and that's a Maddox maneuver. It's something that's worth looking up and being really familiar with kind of the anatomy of that exposure, um, but there's some pretty good pictures online for that. So the, the steps to that, first, I'd take down the white line of talt along the descending colon. I'd medial, medialize the left colon, the spleen, the tail of the pancreas, and then plus or minus the left kidney, which is the modified or the, I'm sorry, to not take that as the modified Maddox maneuver. And this will expose the entire abdominal aorta from the diaphragm down to the iliacs. Yeah, this really is a beautiful exposure um, that you'll see when we do open aortas. But uh, something that's done a little more commonly, I'd recommend residents go scrub some RPLNDs with the urologist. Um, they do a beautiful exposure of the aorta and IVC through a Maddox maneuver. And it's obviously in a much uh, more jovial environment as it's... Uh, <laughs> not in a trauma situation. So if you see an RPL and D on the schedule, a retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, just go kind of watch them and see how they do it because it's a really beautiful exposure. So with that exposure, you're able to get distal control and exposure for your injury. Uh, you, you dive into the hematoma and find an aortic injury. What are some of the general rooms, rules of thumb for repairing an aortic injury? In this area, you can consider using some sort of side-biting vascular clamp, like a Satinsky clamp, um, as far as the suture, a three or a four a proline, um, if you need to um, put a couple of interrupteds or a, run, a running repair there. Um, and then considering uh, a patch, um, a patch angioplasty like we talked about with the carotid for uh, if you're getting too much narrowing um, on the aorta. Yeah, and I think an important thing to remember here is if the aorta was truly transected um, or there's greater than 50% injury, it's unlikely they're going to make it to you. Um, so most of the time you're going to be able to repair this with uh, interrupted or a um, patch. If for some reason, um, you know, it maybe, maybe it's not fully transected, but the, a lot of it's damaged. Um, then you could consider just using a Dacron graph, kind of like an open AAA and do an inner position um, in between the two. But you, you just kind of do what you have to to get inline flow back. Um, and the one thing I just mentioned, even in these trauma cases, when you're clamping the aorta, you're going to want to heparinize these patients, um, you know, because you, the, the distal uh, thrombus that you could create, um, you know, could be devastating. 
Okay, so moving down, the SMA is another zone one structure that can have significant bleeding and serious consequences if not managed appropriately. So if you had concerns for injury here, how would you explore this and get and how would you get there? So the options to expose the SMA include number one, through the lesser sac, number two, performing a Maddox maneuver like we just discussed, which is likely the easiest, and number three, via the root of the small bowel mesentery. So you essentially lift up the transverse colon and you'll palpate the SMA at the base. Yeah, and it kind of depends on which part of the SMA you're trying to get to. Um, if you're trying to get to the origin of the SMA, um, and this is pretty common in vascular for chronic mesenteric ischemia, you're going to do the Maddox maneuver. If you're trying to get to more of the distal or mid SMA, um, you can do the sort of lifting it up and following it, um, following the transverse colon down um, and finding the SMA at the base of that, kind of underneath the pancreas. Um, so it's just kind of knowing what you're looking for and what part of the SMA you have to treat is important uh, to have in mind here. Okay, so now with an SMA injury, what's going through your term? What's going through your head in terms of management? So here, you really need to be thinking about getting restoration of flow. Um, this is absolutely an injury that needs to be um, addressed by um, reperfusing um, the uh, the intestines. This is not something that can be ligated, especially if it's proximally. Very distal SMA injuries, you could consider that, um, but. Think of shunting if you're in a bad situation, you need to get the OR out of the OR in a damage control type surgery, and then coming back for a formal repair as opposed to ligation. I agree. Um, so walk me through some of your treatment options here. So as always, proximal distal control. Um, your distal control can be anywhere distal to the injury. As far as the proximal area, you may need to get a side biting clamp on part of the aorta if you don't have enough of a, of a proximal stump there. Um, you need to make sure you're performing a thrombectomy um, like we talked about with the upper extremity and making sure you're getting good back bleeding. And so seeing bleeding coming from that, uh, that distal transected under the artery, um, doing this with uh, a Fogarty balloon and then um, doing your repair with, uh, you know, like a 5 or 6 proline here. Um, and then as we talked about previously, if you, if you need to shunt, then shunt and come back later. Yeah, absolutely. Shunt works great here. Um, definitely have your saphenous vein ready if you do have to replace it. There's a lot of branches of the SMA. Obviously, you want to take as few of them as you have to, but you know if you have to take a branch or a couple branches to get things repaired, you know that's something you have to do. Um, so, what other visceral vessels and, and what are your principles of managing the other visceral vessels? Um, so, just kind of keeping it in general terms from the resident perspective, I think really just thinking of what we can and can we not ligate in a damage control situation. So we talked about SMA is really not going to be tolerated very well, especially if it's proximal. Branches of the celiac uh, can be ligated, ligated proximally just because of that really great collateralization in the foregut. And then in most cases, the IMA can be ligated, but you should be aware it might not be as well tolerated in someone who's had a prior colon surgery. Yeah. So the celiac and the IMA can go, um, you know, and just have to Make sure your liver still perfuse and your colon still perfuse afterwards. Um, but for the most part, they can go. Um, great. Now let's say you have a penetrating zone two injury. So you're going to explore. Uh, what structures are you worried about and how will you approach this? Um, so for zone two, the main thing that we're seeing in, in trauma perspective is the kidneys and their uh, their vascular supply as well as the, the ureters. Um, so... Um, like we said earlier, start with your appropriately sided medial visceral rotation. Um, and then you want to make sure that you're gaining your vascular control prior to entering any sort of hematoma or injured area. 
Um, it's important to note here that if you're um, diving into uh, a large hematoma in this area, um, to be potentially prepared to doing it for doing a nephrectomy um, and making sure this can be uh, tolerated by the patient. Yeah, definitely. Uh, nephrectomy many times is what's required um, in this situation. It's it's quite hard um, to repair damaged kidneys unless it's minimal. So um, definitely if you're diving in there planning on doing nephrectomy, make sure the other kidney is functional. Uh, um, otherwise, get extra help and get extra opinions in there to see if there's any way to repair it. Okay, moving on down. How will you approach a zone three injury? So again, just to reiterate, zone three is the pelvis and that includes the iliacs and branches off there. So management really can vary, uh, especially now with more endovascular capabilities and resources. But again, we're going to focus on open today. So for the iliacs, your proximal control is going to be the proximal iliac or distal aorta. And if you need to do that, you'll need to mobilize the colon and the cecum. And then you'll get your distal control likely via femoral cut down. Yeah, and I, I think one thing to remember here is what they like to talk about is uh, iliac vein injuries or like uh, where the confluence of the iliac veins comes into IVC. Many times, if there's a significant injury there, you're going to have to uh, ligate your right common iliac artery to be able to visualize this area because um, it's kind of overlies right over the uh, confluence of of the iliac veins. Um, and then obviously you'd put the iliac artery back together once you fix the iliac veins. And these iliac veins can be very problemsome um, with bleeding. And so sometimes you just pack patient warm and these things will get better uh, rather than doing some big venous repair. Okay, so let's dive into the femoral exposures like you mentioned, talk us through that. Um, so here we're gonna be doing the longitudinal incision um, extending um, across the midpoint between the pubic tuberal and the asis. Um, and then dissecting down, entering your femoral sheath, looping out uh, your um, femoral artery to, to uh, further assess and or just gain control distally if that's what you're going for. Yeah, I think it's really important. Um, and just keep in mind the pubic tubercle and the anterior superior iliac spine, that is your marker of your inguinal ligament. And just mark this on every patient that you plan on a femoral cut down um, because in obese patients, you can be fooled and you can be cutting down way down on their SFA. Um, so just mark this uh, every time, um, whether you're endovascular or open, um, and it'll really help you stay on the common femoral artery. Um, so let's go back to the iliacs real quick. Uh, what are some principles of repairing this? So pretty similar to other vascular repairs, you're going to want to use a, a 4 or 5 proline for the size artery, and you may patch um, or put in an imposition as, if needed, and a venous graft is preferred, especially if you're in the proximal iliacs and there's any gut contamination from, you know, con concomitant injuries. Um, if you're in a damage control scenario, you can ligate the iliacs, um, but particularly for the common or external iliac, that's going to really risk limb loss. Um, that's a hard one to come back from. You can usually safely ligate one of the internal iliacs with minimal sequela given collateralization. But again, those externals and distal is pretty, pretty challenging. Yeah, and uh, impor important to note that if you are going to be ligating the iliacs, which sometimes need, needs, or an iliac, which sometimes needs to be done, um, consider, strongly consider performing a lower extremity fasciotomy um, to make sure um, that you're not getting compartment syndrome because of the, the ligation. Yeah, just a few points I'd add here is the internal iliacs, you have to have one patent to the pelvis, otherwise they're going to get pelvic necrosis. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the 
common iliac. I would do everything possible to replace it um, in pretty much any situation. Um, and then the other issue is sometimes you get iliac vein injuries, um, and those are more tolerated for ligation. I've seen these in spine cases, especially um, in, in, in other situations. And you can ligate the, the iliac veins with less morbidity, but you do uh, want to consider a fasciotomy in those patients um, because of the, the significant venous swelling that they're going to have. Mm-hmm. So good discussion on these large abdominal vessel injuries. What are some final points to consider? So definitely don't be afraid to perform preperitoneal packing and switch to an endovascular approach if it's better suited for a pelvic vessel injury. I think once you get in and open up on those, that can be really challenging to repair. So it's a pretty safe option to do packing and go to the endo suite if you have that capability. Um, the other thing to consider is, um, especially in the setting of a visceral arterial injury or repair, a temporary abdominal com- Closure is definitely useful. It allows you to come back to the OR, reassess for bowel viability in a pretty short interval, interval and making sure you don't have significant ischemia um, to areas because of um, your, uh, your injury. Absolutely. Those are both like some, probably the two most important points of this whole discussion is the pelvis is really hard to operate in, especially in trauma, especially in bleeding patients pack it and go to the endo suite if possible. And then all these patients, um, you know, should have, if there's any major vascular repair, uh, have temporary abdominal closures to, you know, reevaluate the bowel and, and, and whatever was reperfused at a, at a later date. Okay. Um, so let's move on to the IVC portal and mesenteric venous injuries. Um, so we're going to discuss a major abdominal venous injury, mainly looking at the IVC portal vein and the mesenteric veins. What are some considerations for this initial approach? So first it's important just to, you know, again, be aware, yes, their veins are lower pressure, but an injury to the IVC portal or mesenteric veins can be highly lethal and the patient can present an extremis or they can present stable and really deteriorate right in front of you. So you need to have a high index of suspicion with these patients. Um, and, and like we said earlier, the CTA is the, the workup choice uh, for this. Um, what you're going to be seeing on your imaging if you've um, put them through the CT is a hematoma somewhere around the ascending colon um, and the duodenum, as well as a potential cable filling defects. Um, these are more specific uh, for an IVC injury. And to note, select patients such as those that are hemodynamically stable who have a very small or moderate sized hematoma on CT may be observed if there's no other reason for an intervention. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you have all this retroperitoneal tissue surrounding the IVC that's kind of tamponading and keeping everything in place. And once you go in there and disrupt that, uh, you're going to have a a big problem on your hands. So a lot of these injuries, um, if there's no bowel injury, can potentially be observed. Um, so let's run through a case. We have a 35-year-old male with a penetrating injury to the abdomen. He presents he presents initially hypotensive, but translate responds to resuscitation. CT uh, shows concern for IVC injury in the abdomen. Given the mechanism, you plan on operative intervention. What are some maneuvers you'd like to think about? So after you've gained access into the abdomen, you're going to be doing performing a right-to-left medial vessel rotation uh, with cocorization of the duodenum, your brash maneuver. Um, once you complete that, um, that next maneuver, like we talked about earlier, would be getting sponge sticks placed, you know, on your IVC to just get pressure above and below um, your injury, um, and then from there, diving into your hematoma and um, determining what repair is uh, is needed based on the injury, like we've talked about. 
And just to briefly run through it, um, for those that haven't been in the scenario or for the more junior listeners, so the steps to the catalbrash kind of bird's eye view is number one, incise the white line of talc from the base of the cecum to the hepatic flexure. Two is then mobilizing the hepatic flexure. Three is performing your cochrane maneuver. And then four is mobilizing the cecum and the small bowel up and out of the pelvis. And that gives you the visualization you need. Here, the same as uh, we discussed previously, performing generally with some sort of a, like a 4-0 type of proline and then your other adjuncts as needed. Definitely. And uh, to kind of get ideas of how to visualize this, uh, scrubbing in on some whipples and things like that, they do a nice exposure of this. So um, a non-trauma situation that you can visualize this exposure. Um, Okay, so you've got the IVC exposed and you see welling of blood behind the liver, everyone's biggest nightmare. Uh, What do you do now? So I'd start with the Pringle maneuver. Um, you may be suspecting an IVC injury, but you kind of want to start with the basics because you can't truly know. So I do my Pringle, which is clamping the portal triad. And then I'll help me identify the source of bleeding. If it's not controlled with the Pringle maneuver, then it is likely a hepatic vein or an IVC injury. So you've kind of effectively ruled out um, other injuries with that maneuver. Yeah, and these can be very challenging if it turns out to be a retrohepatic IVC injury. Um, definitely step one is getting um, good packing uh, on your lever, getting um, anterior to posterior compression um, and seeing how much control um, you can you can gain with that pressure. And if the bleeding is unfortunately not controlled with that pressure, in this scenario, you might consider a right anterior lateral thoracotomy to get superhepatic IVC control within the pericardium. After this, you'd mobilize the liver to expose the retrohepatic IVC, allowing for your repair. Yeah. So obviously we all want to go with the pressure route. Um, so this is really, like you mentioned, uh, getting good pressure, get a partner in there, um, you know, get circumferential packs that are really pushing in the, in the correct direction to give you what you need, um, and warm the patient up, get their blood, um, products and everything they need to, uh, have, have a non-operative intervention on the hepatic vein. Um, so, they can be tough to control, tough to get clamps on, require delicate handling to not tear the vein and make the injury worse. What are some adjuncts uh, or damage control options? Um, so here you can consider balloon occlusion um, as an alternative for um, a, a proximal control. Like we said, if we we're wanting to avoid getting into the right chest um, and then IVC ligation for, for major IVC injuries is possible in extreme circumstances. Um, this is done preferably uh, below the renal veins. Otherwise, you really risk acute renal failure um, for these patients. Yeah, absolutely. Really tough problems. You can ligate the IVC if you need to. Like we said, fasciotomies if you do. Um, and then consider balloon occlusion if you need it. So let's say that the bleeding is instead welling up in a portal triad. How do you approach the portal vein injury? So here's where you can do your Pringle maneuver and it will help you. So you want to get control of the triad, usually using umbilical tape or something kind of non-traumatic to, to gain control of it. You want that to be proximal to your injury. You'll then mobilize your hepatic flexure and perform a wide coker to get the exposure you need. Yeah, here also... Um, don't be afraid to divide the neck of the pancreas um, if needed to get uh, more proximal exposure um, of that portal vein. 
And then you're going to gently dissect the portal vein off the common bile duct and hepatic artery to get a more local control and identify your injury. And ideally here, you perform a primary pair with a 5-0 or 6-0 proline. But again, like other places, as if needed, you can do a patch or a vein graft if you're going to have significant narrowing of the vein. Yeah, this is the, the one probably situation of any situation where they say, yeah, sure, go ahead and divide the pancreas. Um, but yeah, I think those are all great points for the portal vein. And like we said, mentioned in the uh, Whipples, um, you know, they you know, completely skeletonize the portal vein. So it's a good place to go see um, that. Um, yeah. And, and then just quickly, one other thing is that the portal vein, uh, patients do not tolerate ligation of the portal vein. Um, they'd get massive uh, venous swelling of their intestines and likely uh, they likely succumb to that. So we do anything we can to preserve uh, the portal vein. Um so the last major abdominal vein we'll discuss is the SMV. Uh, what are some key points on this injury? So for an SMV injury, uh, one of the things you'll see that will first alert you to the fact that you potentially have this injury is a, is a central hematoma right at the base of the small bowel mesentery. Um, for this, um, you want to consider a right to left medial visceral rotation um, like we previously described. Um, you can get your hand kind of behind the mesentery um, when you're doing that. And then that will help you kind of gain some manual control uh, approximately uh, when you're dissecting out the vessel and, and, and getting your clamps ready. Um, and then like we previously discussed, uh, dividing the pancreas um, if you need to for um, exposure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so anything else uh, you guys want to consider when uh, treating major abdominal venous injuries? Yeah, so just like general principles, uh, handle with care. The veins are thin-walled. They can easily tear. You know, you can't treat it the same way as you, you can a thicker-walled vessel. So you don't want to make your bleeding worse in the midst of your repair. Uh, I think another one of the good things to remember is the can and can't ligate situation. So the SMV portal vein ligation um, gets serious uh, splanchnic sequestration occurring there. So um, make sure you do everything you can to... Um, to, to repair that and then plan for aggressive volume resuscitation postoperatively um, if you do have to do some sort of, um, you know, SMV ligation um, and then a relook laparotomy is needed to ensure bowel viability. And lastly, don't forget your damage control resuscitation. So again, we've talked about what you can't ligate, but when it becomes kind of a life-threatening injury, you have to still keep that in your back pocket. You don't want to get caught doing a complicated venous repair, especially not in something distal or you know less less um, important in the setting of a patient who's dying is coagulopathic. Um, just be aware of what you can and can't get away with and ligate as needed. Yeah, I think those are all great points. And uh and I think venous injuries make uh, a lot of surgeons sometimes more uh, nervous than arterial injuries because of just how friable and thin-walled the veins are and how you can uh, make your injury a lot worse than you started with, uh, with just a few uh, bad places of suture. Um, so definitely think of pledgets and things like that as these veins do not like to, to be operated on. Um, okay, so I think we did a nice job covering that. So let's dive into the lower extremity here. Um, so let's say you have a 30-year-old man with a blunt trauma to his left thigh um, with a deformity and a decreased ABI. CTA shows a common femoral artery injury. 
uh, how would you approach this patient? I think we can briefly circle back to what we talked about in that first podcast is that making sure that you have a good neurovascular exam completed prior to, to your interventions um, can help with, uh, especially with post-op evaluations, um, assessing if there are any possible complications from the um, procedure that was done or if this is, you know, some sort of deficit that the, that the patient initially came in with. And again, just reiterating the intervention or the um, ischemia time is really important to be aware of. We've talked kind of earlier, you know, generally at this point, we consider six hours to be that kind of golden time for, for limb ischemia, but there's some evidence coming out that that might be too long. And you'll see in the, the larger content of the richest chapter text, really they're discussing more of a three hour threshold. But in general, the principle is as early as possible and safe is when you should be reperfusing these patients. Um, also consider getting your consultants um, contacted early for complicated limb injuries. Um, for many of these cases, you're going to be working with the orthopedics team for fracture fixation. Um, and then having that discussion about shunting, who's going first, making sure, you know, the reperfusion of the limb is, is a priority early, especially as your time moves on in that limb ischemia. Um, the other thing to consider with getting your consultants on board is that this is a very complex limb injury with um, a lot of soft tissue damage and nerve injury and other things. And you're talking about limb salvage options versus primary amputation, getting all those uh, folks in early to assess the limb and to have a good uh, multidisciplinary discussion is, is very key because these, com uh, these decisions can be quite complex. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we deal with a lot of complex limb injuries uh, at, at Brook Army Medical Center. And uh, I think the mantra that we go by is um, even if it looks really bad and it's mangled, et cetera, um, it's, it's better to make that decision in the morning with the patient um, than to do it in the middle of the night. Um, so we do everything we can, uh, no matter the time, no matter, you know, almost no matter how mangled it is to reperfuse and get it X fixed. Um, and then kind of come to light the next day, talk to the plastic surgeons, talk to orthopedic surgeons, see if there's any nerve uh, function in the foot and, and really helps make those decisions uh, easier uh, the following day. So do what you can um, in the middle of the night um, to keep that leg on. So now that we've evaluated and rolling to the OR, how do you approach this injury? So again, if we're suspecting a femoral artery injury, we're going to, as always, stick to the same tenants. So proximal disc control, get a wide exposure. In the lower extremity, you can get proximal control with a tourniquet. So if there's already one on in particular, you don't want to be taking that down. So I would prep that into your field and consider prepping or having one that's sterile available for use as proximal control. Um, you'll do your same groin cut down and then enter the femoral sheath, kind of similar to the exposure we previously discussed. Um, and then in this injury pattern, depending on how high your arterial injury is in your limb, you need to be, you may need to be gaining uh, proximal control uh, at the iliac level. Um, so if you're in the abdomen, you can do this like we already previously discussed. Um, if you're not in the abdomen for whatever reason um, already for your trauma, you can complete a supraingual incision, um, entering the retroperitoneal plane like they do for the uh, kind of that transplant style incision for kidney transplants, um, mobilizing your peritoneal contents, um, and then accessing, accessing the vessels that way.
Absolutely. If you have a common femoral artery injury, you're definitely going to need external iliac control. If you're not in the belly for other reasons, do the transplant or the spine exposure incision, whatever kind of works to get in that retroperitoneal space. Um, you can also come up and over with a balloon is something we'll sometimes do if we don't want to make a, if it's a real obese patient or something like that. Um, so great. You find a small laceration in the artery. How do you approach this repair? So similar to all the other repairs we've discussed, if it's amendable to primary repair without significant narrowing, then a 5 over 6 of proline should be a good good repair choice. Um, but really the extent of the injury and how much of the surrounding tissue is affected is going to determine whether you need to patch or graft. Absolutely. Um, so let's make things a little more complicated now. Let's talk about the popliteal artery instead. How, would, how does this change things? Um. So for this, you're going to be completing your incisions above and below the knee. This can be um, a tough exposure because it, it feels like you're kind of working low on the table or sometimes feels like you're working upside down here. Um, so it can be definitely completed eas- pretty, more easily in the frog leg position um, with adequate help with people helping uh, externally rotate that limb. Um, above the knee, you're going to be making your incision in the lower thigh, separating the vastus and uh, medialis and the sartorius. And then you're going to be finding your artery deep to those structures within that fat pad behind the limb. Um, a good maneuver potentially here is kind of mobilizing the artery with a, a blunt finger and kind of hooking it and sweeping the artery um, to find it that way. Um, distally, your exposure is completed by making an incision a centimeter behind the tibia, um, entering the uh, superficial posterior um, compartment, and then retracting the gastroc posteriorly, taking down the soleus off the tibia. Um, And then um, when you're there, identifying your artery uh, posteriorly. Um, And then your your repair is going to be really determined as far as what what you find in in the, as far as your injury. And then if there's a really large injury or you're really having a challenge getting the access you need to assess it, you could consider bypassing exclusion with the saphenous vein harvest. Um, for your anastomoses, you'll use 6-O-proline likely given the size of the vessels and you'll spatulate the edges of the vein to make the anastomosis. Again, same principles. You want to ensure good back bleeding um, and, and if needed, perform an embolectomy prior to doing the distal anastomosis. Also, it's important to be aware in this location um, as it goes over a joint, it's really priority would be to get a vein as a conduit if you can, because the PTFD patency is not as great below the knee and should be avoided. Yeah, absolutely. Have a low threshold to bypass popular artery injuries. Um, you know, they'll, they'll do well with a short bypass. Um, so definitely use vein um, when possible. So for tibial vessel injuries in these limbs, most of the time, these can just be ligated um, if they have good inflow from other vessels. So making sure that they have perfusion to their foot after you ligate it, um, and then you know you're kind of good to go. So, you know, with all these uh, lower extremity injuries, um, there's some other things to consider. So what else is important um, when you're dealing with these lower extremity arterial injuries? So kind of like we touched on before, when the patient's in extremis and, and you're really in that damage control mode where you can't safely perform a repair Vessels can be ligated. Um, you know, you may be unfortunately losing that limb salvage option. But if if you're in a scenario where you think you can temporize or you can resuscitate the patient and come back, consider strongly using a shunt so that you can maintain those attempts at limb salvage. Or like we're talking about, you know, maintain the option to give the patient some part in the conversation. 
Yeah, and I think it's a, a like we talked about with some of the more devastating venous injuries in the abdomen. If the patient's in a bad spot, a primary amputation isn't um, necessarily a bad thing. If it's a life-saving maneuver, um, do what you can to to save the limb. And um, but like you know, like we talked about having them make that decision in the morning. But um, if you if it, the limb needs to go because the patient's an extremist, then completing a, an extremity amputation rapidly is definitely a life-saving maneuver. And something I got asked about um, on one of my trauma rotations was the MESS score, and I, I had to do some reading on that one, but there's a, a variety of different scoring systems to help you determine um, whether or not the patient needs a primary amputation or how they would do in terms of limb salvage. So I think that's one worth looking up. There's a pretty extensive list of components, but some of the ones that you know are most easy to remember is the age, is the patient in shock, um, kind of the status of the limb, and then how extensive is the soft in- soft tissue injury, because that's an important factor to consider. You may be able to get a great uh, arterial repair, but if you can't get good coverage or there's significant contamination or loss of soft tissue, that's a factor that affects your ability to do limb salvage. Um, I think we'd be remiss uh, to not discuss how to do the fasciotomy and the steps of the fasciotomy, considering we've um, talked about it so much and how it is key, especially with lower limbs who, that have longer ischemia times. Um, so your anterior and your lateral compartments are going to be open via the lateral incision. The incision should be placed um, a finger width in front of kind of the imaginary line um, connecting, connecting your uh, lateral malleolus to the fibular head. Um, you're going to complete an H-type incision um, through the fascial septum between the anterior and the lateral compartments. Um, and then you're going to release those um, fully proximally and distally for both compartments. Um, another trick here is it's, it, uh, it, it can be something to look for is to palpate the septum between the anterior and the lateral to know that you've um, released both of those compartments widely. Um, and, a, and a common issue is actually not completing the anterior fasciotomy, making your incision and in, um, your release too posterior when you do this. Definitely. And then on this side, you want to watch out for that perineal nerve, especially more proximally. So next, you're going to open the posterior, deep posterior compartment by taking the soleus off of the tibia. You'll confirm that the compartment is completely released when you can see those visual vessels. Okay. Yeah. Great points. Uh, fasciotomies are critical. Um, you know, have a low uh, threshold to use them in trauma patients because um, it's kind of hard to know how long things have been ischemic and and you really don't want to cause further injury. Um, by having ischemic tissue from uh, compartment syndrome. Um, So we're going to close out just by mentioning a few technical tips for managing pediatric vascular injuries. What do you guys have um, for our listeners for for pediatric vascular injuries? So um, most obvious when you're thinking about pediatrics versus adults, they have smaller vessels, so their repairs may be more difficult and may require expertise. So consider getting, you know, vascular surgeon or someone with more comfort in that area on board early. Uh, additionally, they tend to have more vasospasm. So a trick here is using topical papaverin or lidocaine, which can help reduce the spasm and aid in your repair. Uh, the other thing is we, we discuss avoiding synthetic grafts for a multitude of reasons in trauma, but um, especially in uh, pediatrics, those synthetic grafts aren't going to be growing with them. Um, so avoiding those um, for conduits as much as you, you can. Um, and then for any stent grafts that you're using, long-term imaging is, is very important um, for these folks. So um, 
ensuring that they're not uh, migrating um, and that they're still in the appropriate place as the um, as the patient grows. And then just a small uh, kind of piggy trip. Something we learned was to use interrupted sutures as they'll allow for a circumferential and asthmatic expansion with the vessel's growth, uh, as opposed to the running suture that you generally see in adults. So um, that's something to consider. And then along those lines, the vessel end should be spatulated kind of as much as possible for a similar reason to allow for, ex for expansion. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's anyone that feels, uh, quote unquote, comfortable with pediatric vascular injuries. Um, and I think those are great tips. I, and I think the one thing I've learned is to be very patient um, in these cases. If you perform like an interposition bypass um, and they don't have signals at the end, it's probably vasospasm uh, as long as you did a good repair and you had back bleeding. Um, so give it time, give them papaverin, give them the lidocaine, the nitro, and just give it time as long as the hand is warm or the foot is warm, even if you don't have a good pulse, just give it a little time. And many times uh, if your repair is technically uh, good, uh, things will end up okay. Um, so even, even with patients that we've seen some, uh, cardiology patients where the common femoral, uh, stenosis after the, the, the cardiologist access it and they want us to repair it. And, you know, uh, the, the foot's kind of red and you just kind of give it some time many times and heparinize them and, and it'll get better without having to intervene, which is obviously the goal to not intervene on these little kiddos. Um, so anyways, this concludes uh, our three-part series uh, on managing vascular trauma. So thank you so much, Alec and Alexis, for joining us and helping us break this down for residents. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us. And everyone look out for the, the Riches Vascular Trauma 4th edition for some more detail on kind of the things we discuss and in all things vascular trauma. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Really, uh, really appreciate getting to come on and, and talk to folks about vascular trauma. Until next time, dominate the day.